You are listening to WHOA Podcast, coming to you from Gainesville, Florida. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the WHOA GNV Podcast, the podcast bringing you businesses and individuals that make you go, whoa. My name is Colin Austin, and I am your host, and my guest co-host today is the same guy it's been for a little while. <laughs> Michael Dees, COE, Chief of Everything, backed by popular demand of new scooters for less. What's up, man? Not much, man. How are you? I'm great. You're nailing the intro down. I'm like, like I'm getting closer. You're getting closer. good. Satch yeah. will be proud of you. Yeah. Shout out to Satch. <laughs> <laughs> Satch already said I never introduced myself. And so I'm trying to make sure that I introduce myself now. It's a thing. <laughs> yeah, Satchel, Satchel so, tells you to do it, you should probably do it. Of right? course. That's my life philosophy. Yeah, exactly. What's up, man? What's going on? Anything Not much, new? man. Uh, uh, just it's that time of year for us. I think I said that last time, last yeah. week. It was just the, the chill. Yeah, the students are leaving town, so we're amping up for what storage season for us and trying to get all of our ducks in a row for back to school in the summer. We did have the NS4L family reunion this that was past awesome. weekend. Yeah, that, that was, was so cool. cool. Yeah, had a couple alumni show up. We had some fun. We did a tailgate, went to the Lake, Lake Wahlberg. That was cool. Yeah, that was, awesome. that was neat. So we pulled like old, you know, we pulled old team members and new team members together and had like a little a dinner. You guys went out to, well, I mean, we're recording this after the orchard. True story, we actually talked about Taskbook. <laughs> really? Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we did, we did, because <laughs> we were talking about that. So, so we'll let that, that's a great segue. Let me introduce you to our guest of the day. We have Josh Judy, the, the salary negotiation coach for software developers and author of Fearless Salary Negotiation. And Mike mentions Taskbook because he created Taskbook, which was a thing that we used for a while, and then you ended up like close, you know, stopping doing that, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll get we'll get into all of it. But yeah. welcome, man. Thanks. How are you doing? It's, I'm awesome, man. It's great to be here. Yeah. I'm Love excited. the energy on the intro. Great intro. Yeah. So you can tell Satch. I'll tell Satch. Next time I see him, I'll be like, dude, I was on the podcast, and he crushed the intro. <laughs> <laughs> so much energy like, I've in the always, intro. I've always got like the intro part down. It was, it was actually funny because in, in like Satch's episode, he's like, yeah, you know, if we could like bring it down to like right here. <laughs> yeah, Satch, so Satch so in that, right in that like, one, yeah, in that one episode. <laughs> I was like, um, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the WHOA GNV podcast. I was like, very like, now we're mellow. doing an NPR show. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, exactly. like, Satch was like, yo, if you bring it down here and I bring it up here, we'll be like, perfect. <laughs> like, right on the same <laughs> it level. Was, it was a good episode. I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah. So, it was, it was, it was good. Is that up yet? I haven't seen that one. Yeah, it's up. It is? Yeah. Well, All now, right. well, it's not up while we're recording this. Okay. It's, <laughs> but, it's up. But when now, this, now. Uh, when this episode, it will be up. Yeah, so. yeah. In the reality, when this episode exists, that episode exists. Yeah. All right. Got it. Yeah, exactly. All right. It's a, it's a whole planning ahead thing. You have to, this, this, that's the hard part of what we do for sure. Like we're trying to get enough, enough episodes in advance because we have other projects that we're doing. The editing alone on this, like video, and I mean just just everything. So we're usually we're usually a month ahead. So if anybody's like, oh, I wonder how far ahead they record, it's usually about a month. Like this episode will, will air in a month. Awesome. So. I'm looking forward to the Satch podcast. I love. I, do you listen to his podcast? Do I listen to them? Satchel's podcast. Yeah, it's we talked. We talked about it on the show. Okay, he okay, was okay, actually okay. kind of hesitant about letting people know about yeah, it. Yeah, he, he was like, like, he was like, I don't really like know if I should let people know about it, and um, and I got him to spill the beans. He like announced that he has okay, the Satch, the the, the Satch cast is yeah. what he called it, right? The Satch cast. Um, awesome. And so he announced it on our. Po- I feel privileged that he announced that on our podcast. It's great. I like. I've been listening to it like since the first episode dropped. I was like, I want to hear what he says. You know what I mean? And it's like, there's <laughs> nothing else like it. Like you listen to it, it's literally just like Satchel, like in his own world, like doing like a diary basically into a microphone. It's great. Yeah, that's that's awesome. cool. Yeah, yeah, that's neat. Well, man, we're like, I'm excited to get into your story and all the things that have happened. I mean, how long have we known each other now? Any idea? Six or seven years. Yeah, right. So yeah. like, and and when we were at our old location, you had designed. Taskbook. I actually, I'm gonna like let you kind of tell your story. Okay. And then like, cause that's, we always do that. We kind of start with the origin story. So I'll let you t- start your story and then I'm sure I'm just gonna ask you like a million and a half questions. Okay, <laughs> so, okay. So let's do it. All right, I'll see if I can give you like the compressed version of my story, which is great for Gainesville because I started in Gainesville as a UF undergrad student studying engineering and then uh, got dual degrees in computer and electrical engineering. So that took a lot of, a lot of time. Um, almost six years, and then when I graduated, I moved out to Dallas, Texas to work at a Department of Defense contractor, so basically like a big government job in defense, and I did that for like almost three years, and 
frankly was just bored um, and woke up one day, this is true, I woke up one day and looked around and I said, what, why am I here? You know, I didn't really have that many friends. I had a few friends, but not many. It wasn't, wasn't amazing. Uh, and I realized the answer to the question was because this is where I got a job after I graduated. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, that's not a very good reason to be in a city. I can get jobs kind of anywhere. So I immediately got a job back here in Gainesville at a, a Gainesville startup called Mindsolve. I don't know if you remember Mindsolve. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a when they sold, I think they were like a $5 million company. Okay. Um, and they sold to a bigger company. And I, I went there instead of being like an electrical engineering type, I went to be like a consultant and business analyst and project manager for them. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, doing... Uh, project management work and, and consulting and, and that kind of thing for like this 30 person software startup. And so then I kind of, that's where I kind of started to learn business stuff. So that's, that's where this like germane to what we're going to talk about today, I think, is um, the reason I left engineering, a big part of it was I realized I didn't want to be just a guy sitting at a computer all the time, just kind of behind the scenes. Like I wanted to work with customers and I wanted to understand how business worked. And I think I, I didn't quite know this early on, but I think I sort of had an inkling that eventually I was just gonna run my own business. Like that I, I was not a good employee. Like I did good work, my work product was good, but, but mentally I was not a good employee. Like I did not like working for somebody else. I didn't like taking orders from other people. I didn't like doing things that I thought were dumb. Uh, even though, you know, just because they You're told like, oh, me that's that. dumb. Yeah, basically, you know, I've, had like, some, hey. I've had some of those employees. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> They're everywhere. They're going to be entrepreneurs one day, probably. Uh, They're like, uh, I think that's a terrible thing, but I'm going to do it because you told me to. I'm just want to go on the record and say that's bad. Um, <laughs> and so I started kind of learning the ropes. Uh, then I went back to UF and got an MBA uh, part time. Um, and then when I finished my MBA in 2011, I did a bunch of things. So this is like a pivotal year for me. Um, I uh, quit my job. Uh, that I had at the time. I began to learn to build web applications using a a platform called Ruby on Rails or a stack called Ruby on Rails. Um, And I started writing my first book. Actually, that's not true. I started writing my second book, but my first one that got published, which was a poker book um, with a couple of poker pro friends. And I went to Las Vegas and I played in the World Series of Poker main event and did a bunch of other stuff. So I thought I was gonna take just eight months. I got my MBA. I've been working like a lot. I'm just gonna take it easy for eight months. And instead I went and like had probably one of the most productive years that I've ever had in terms of just all the stuff that I was doing. So that's what laid the groundwork for, I eventually went back and got a day job, but as soon as 2011 was over, I had begun building software, like applications. And the second thing that I built was Taskbook. And so that's where we kind of merge. I met you at, um, I think at the Entrepreneurs Lunch that we used to do. Yeah, I missed that lunch. Yeah, that was fun, man, you got to meet a lot again. I mean, you're kind of doing that lunch now one podcast at a time, I think is what's yeah. happening. You replaced it. Welcome to my lunch. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the 7 a.m. or whatever time. Uh, yeah, time yeah, yeah. Um, the podcast lunch. So yeah. So then um, one of those applications was Taskbook, which was, um, it was basically recurring task management for small to medium businesses. And I was targeting like retail businesses. So your, your shop was just a great sort of early customer for me um, because you were doing exactly what I wanted. You had a serious focus on process and customer experience. And I thought, well, if I can get Colin using this and it works, then I can get a lot of people using it. Uh, I did get Colin using it at New Scooters for Less. um, And y'all used it for like two years, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically what happened was during the time that I was developing that, I started writing Fearless Salary Negotiation. Well, why don't you give everybody just a real super brief synopsis of like what the product was, what task was. Oh, sure. So it was like, the idea is like with shops like New Scooters for Less or other businesses that run, you have a lot of employees who are mostly like hourly employees. They don't run run the business, but they're, they're, one of many people who work in the business. And there's a bunch of recurring stuff that has to happen every day for the business to to thrive, to work. And so that's stuff like as simple as like unlock the front door, turn the lights on, start the coffee pot, right? That kind of stuff. All the way down to like very specific business detail about making sure that your business is operating, making sure that there's cash in the register and that kind of thing. And so the idea was that what I set up was um, through Taskbook was you could create those, I called them checklists, right? Everybody knows what a checklist is. Checklists that needed to be done every day and you could set them up to be shown to whoever was logging into the system that day. So I created like a kiosk thing at the time. I still haven't seen anything quite like it where people could like hot swap into new user accounts with just a four digit pen. And so like if Tim went off shift and Janine came on shift, then Janine could just like pop in her pen and she could pick up right where Tim left off. She could see what he did, comments he left, what was done, what needed to be done and just do the stuff that needed to be done. And then on the back end, the managers of the business could see what had been done, what hadn't been done. There was a dashboard. They could see like how many of these lists are being done every day, what's not being done. What are the comments and the notes that are being left by my employees saying like we're out of this thing or this process isn't working well. And so the idea was just to help automate some of that stuff so stuff didn't fall between the cracks. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it I mean, well. it was, 
I, I still think it was an excellent piece of software, personally. Like, I'm, I'm proud of what I built there. Um, and, and when it was shut down, I was really sad to do it, but it was like one of those things where I just had to make a choice, and the choice was I gotta pick between building one business and building another business, and yeah. I, I picked the business that I jumped to. Yeah, so Taskbook was great, and it had paying customers, and like, I think that if I had known anything, anything, literally anything about marketing, I, I could have probably built that into like a, a, a reasonable business that I could have lived off of. Um, but I didn't know anything about marketing, and so it was a real grind, um, and the, the salary negotiation stuff took off a lot easier, and so I kind of pivoted there. Yeah, all right, so tell us about that. All right, so, <laughs> so as I was building Taskbook, I was also working full-time. I started writing this book, um, which at the time I thought of as like um, kind of my opus on career management. Um, I had made a lot of unorthodox career decisions, um, like leaving my job at a department of defense contractor that was super stable, like really easy. At those jobs you work 40 hours a week at most. A lot of people are flexing every other Friday and so they're working their 40 hours in nine days. They call it a 940. And so, um, or 980, sorry. And so I, I had it easy. Like I was gonna make decent money for the rest of my career, retire pretty well, but I was bored. And so I went to a 30 person startup where they just work you to the bone. Um, you, don't, you don't jump into a little startup like that that's a software company at the beginning of like the software as a service revolution where everybody's going to monthly billing and stuff. Um, in a services business, I was busy. I was working really hard. But I did that because I wanted to learn certain things and I had kind of a career arc in mind for myself. And so I had done stuff like that and began negotiating my salary and just had learned a lot of unorthodox stuff because I was willing to try stuff, which is a characteristic that I have that like, I'll, I'll do things in my business now. We'll talk about this later, but like, I know it's going to fail. But what I wanna learn is like, how is it going to fail? Like, what will the repercussions be of trying this thing so I can learn from the failure? I'll do it on purpose. So I was doing that with my career almost as like an experiment. And so people would come to me and ask questions about, you know, oh, I, I got this job offer, what should I do? Or I'm thinking about moving into this industry, what do you think about that? And so I would talk to people. So I thought, well, I've been counseling friends and family on this for years, why don't I just write a book about it? So I start writing a book about it. Initially, the first draft of the book was called Take Control of Your Career. Um, and I took it, um, took the draft and like the outline to um, a friend of mine at a conference in Las Vegas. Um, it's like an entrepreneur's conference that I, I went to for several years and we'll probably go back to. This guy, Josh Kaufman, um, author of a book called Personal MBA, super smart guy. Um, and he, he sat down with, over dinner with this, another guy who was an expert in publishing on Amazon and he just laid out my entire publishing strategy for my book in one hour. He gave me the title. He said, you can't publish this book on your career and career management because nobody will read it. It's a textbook on how to manage your career and zero people are gonna buy that book. Nobody's interested in a career textbook. They just aren't. And, but you got something here about salary negotiation that's valuable because people can draw a straight line there from what do I do in my, my I buy this product, what do I do in my career, now I have more money, right? That's an easy sales pitch. You, you give me money, I give you more money back. Or as another friend of mine, another Josh says, um, you're selling money at a discount, right? So that's a much easier sales pitch <laughs> than why don't you read this textbook on how to manage a career? Here's how to write good emails. Here's how to like sit in a conference and, or, or on a conference call and not sound like an idiot and stuff like that, which is useful, but not something people will pay for. Right. And so now I've got the publishing strategy and everything. I published the book, Fearless Salary Negotiation. It does well on Amazon, hits number one in a couple of categories. And I kind of off to the races. And the idea when I published the book was, okay, well, I'm gonna try and turn this into enough like monthly revenue from uh, book sales and core sales that I'm gonna be able to make a living on fearless salary negotiation stuff while I build Taskbook. That was the plan. Um, and I was like, if I get you know three or four months under my belt, I'll be making a few thousand dollars a month. I can pay all my bills here in low cost Gainesville uh, and I'll be good to go and now I can build my software business. And of course I found out immediately like it's really hard to generate $4,000 a month from selling a book and stuff, very hard. As a self-published guy, I'm not traditionally published on this. So, um, so then I started getting traction with fearless salary negotiation but realized it was gonna be hard work but that I really loved the work because I was actually helping people make more money um, and get more value for the work they provided for these bigger businesses. And so I had, there's this moment, I think it was like at the beginning, I wanna say the beginning of 2016, where I had to decide, do I continue building Taskbook and stick with my initial plan or do I shut that off and then start doubling down on fearless salary negotiation and grow that business? And so that's when I had to make that decision. I remember talking to you and being like, I gotta shut it down. I don't, yeah. you know, I have to pick one and I can't build two businesses, which is ironic because I actually did end up building two businesses. We're gonna talk about that, I think. But that's when Fearless Salary Negotiation took off uh, with the book, with courses and stuff like that, and then later with the coaching. So that's kind of my full arc from graduating from UF undergrad all the way through to today in the business that I'm running now. Yeah, so how did it like take off? 
Well, it was kind of a slow grind. I mean, that's that's the the kind of myth, right? Is that you're gonna like you're gonna start a business and then you're gonna find a hockey stick like on day one. Like that's just not how it works. And I know you you guys know that, right? Yeah. Um, and so at first it was like I'd sell a few books, and then the next month I'd sell a few more books, and then I made courses to go along with the books to teach specific topics, and that slowly started getting traction. But the thing that eventually really took off for me was um, uh, somebody who had read my book. I had coached, so when I was writing my book, I was coaching people, but only as a proof of concept for my methodology. So I was like, I think this is how to do this. People would come to me and say, hey, I got a job offer, can you help? And I'd say, sure, let's do it. Then we'd go through my methodology and I could see like where I needed to improve it or what worked for them or what didn't. And that's, I was just doing it as market research for my book, basically. Um, <laughs> and then somebody came to me, um, the, the wife of one of the guys that I coached as I was writing my book, she came to me and said, hey, I have your book and everything, but what's your rate? I wanna just hire you to coach me through this process. And I, I didn't have a rate because I'd never done it for pay before. And she was a freelancer at the time. And I was like, well, what's your rate? She said, 75 bucks an hour. And I said, okay, that's my rate, let's go. And so we did it and she paid me 75 bucks an hour and I, ended, I took me like three or four hours to get through it and she made a bunch more money, like a bunch more money. Um, and so I was like, well, that was pretty cool. And then a month later, somebody else came to me. What's your rate? And I said, $120 an hour? And she said, uh, all right, let's go. So we did it again, this is a new client, right? got her a bunch more money, and I was like, oh, there's something here. And then my, my friends started agitating, they're like, you know, it sure seems like you can charge a bunch of money to do this coaching stuff. Why don't oh, you yeah. do more of that? Maybe that's your business. And I was kind of resistant to it, because I wanted like the, the recurring income from, like pa I want passive income, right? Sure. Like I wanted, the book sells itself on Amazon, I got these courses, I got this website I'm building, like I'll build all these email funnels and all this stuff, and the stuff will just sell itself. I don't wanna do all this coaching because it requires my time. Like I actually have to get on the phone with people and, and work, as opposed to the passive income. And of course now I know that mostly passive income is, it's not a myth, but it's, it is kind of a myth. Like there, there's really not such a thing as passive income. Like you are working for that income in some capacity. You have to do something, you have to do marketing, you have to do content marketing, you have to create new products to sell to people, you have to find people to sell to, all that stuff. And so then I was like, well, I'll just keep raising my rates. So I kept raising my rates and raising my rates. And then in um, 20... How high did you raise them? The highest I got, so I changed it recently. Because it was on, was, you were on an hourly? I was on hourly and then I went to fixed fee. Okay, so, so what my, was the highest first, hourly? The first fixed fee was $1,500 to work with me and the highest that I charged was 9,000 to work with me, to negotiate an offer. Okay. So I kept going up market as this is happening, right? So I'm working with people who are going to Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and they're getting offers that are worth 250, 350, $450,000 a year. And so um, in order to be able to spend the time that I needed with those people and to do the kind of research I need to do, and usually they're, they're negotiating multiple offers, I had to just charge more. Like it was the only way that I could work with few enough people that I could actually get the value for them that they needed and get the best possible result. Um, so I recently switched actually to, a lot of people suggested this, a smaller upfront fee and then a portion of the improvement that we make in the negotiation. Mm. So now it's 3,000 upfront to work with me and then 10% of the delta on the first year salary, um, which I think in the long run will be more profitable, but um, right now I'm trying to figure out like exactly how to position that so that more people are interested in it. Um, so that's my, my current so pricing on, test. on the delta, so when, so if they're, give, give me an example. All right, so they get an offer from Amazon, let's say the total annual salary, that's base salary, vested equity, and sign-on bonus for year one is $250,000. And we negotiated up to $300,000 for year one. So that's a $50,000 delta, and then I get 10% of that. Got it. So I get 5,000. Got it. Um, so I think that model will be in the long run more profitable, um, but I need to be more selective with who I work with, obviously, to make sure that I can find the right fit so you're still experimenting with this pricing? Well, that's an example of like I don't know what's going to happen with this pricing, but yeah. I think it's worth a shot. It could it could cost me money for a couple. I of months. I still feel like the value is excellent. Mm -hmm. Like when I'm like hearing you say, I'm like, man, this seems too low. Yeah. Well, that's the nice thing about this is it's easy. There's fewer things to fiddle with because before that I had different pricing tiers based on like how large your offers were and how many offers you had and stuff, and it was like just confusing. Um, I had to create an, a, a metric to figure out how to like value the offers and all this stuff. And now it's easier. It's like you pay me this much money upfront and then I get 10% of the delta. And maybe I move that delta up or down depending on what kind of value I'm seeing, right? Maybe it goes up to 20 or down to five or something like that. Um, so I had a, there's a connection here and I don't think you've had him on the pod, but James DiVirgilio was a part of the story mm -hmm. where in 2017, my He will be on at some point. He, I mean, he uh, has yeah, to be, right? Yeah, yeah, like he's, he's incredible. And yeah. like we've, we've talked about, we're trying to find, 
I, I kind of want to, I mean, just so you guys know, James, he has, he has a, a podcast as well. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to like kind of squeeze it in with during that time when his podcast is going like, so I'm thinking like fall. Yep. Because he has a gate, what is Gator Nation? What's it called? Do you Gator know? Nation Football Podcast. Yeah, Gator Nation Football Podcast. Um, so he has that podcast and I kind of, so I want to, you know, have him on the show when it's super starting season, right? Yeah. So, but, but we can also talk about his financial advisory business and everything else too. So, yeah. So he's he's just a sharp entrepreneur, yeah, right? Like you start off something from scratch. Very, he's been very all over the news guy. lately too. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you're on the news all the time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's doing the press tour right now. So I, I was at his place one night, and we were just talking about my business, and it was like at the time it was mostly the products, passive income focused stuff. And I was telling him, I was like, man, I don't know if this is going to make it. Like, because I had when I started my business, I had saved up enough money that I thought would be 18 months to, to 24 months of runway, so that I would have time to build the business from scratch, from zero revenue up over time. I needed cash in the bank to do that. That was my strategy instead of borrowing or taking investment. And so I was burning down my runway and the business was growing but not fast enough to like replace my, to, to pay all my bills and everything. So I was talking to him, I was like, man, this, I, don't know if, I don't know if it's gonna work. Like I'm kind of starting to hunt around on the, on, the, on the down low for other opportunities, maybe a full-time job somewhere, a part-time job to help pay the bills while I build the business. And he's like, why are you selling these books and stuff? He's like, you need to, the coaching is what's valuable for you. Why, you're positioning yourself as like an author who also happens to do coaching. That's everywhere. You need to position yourself as a coach, salary negotiation coach who also happens to sell books. Like you need to flip your business on its head. Yeah. And so we, were, we talked about it for hours and built a whole plan and the next day I went bam, executed, flipped some switches on my site, now I'm a salary negotiation coach. Um, and the next month was my biggest month yet. And the next yeah. month after that was bigger than that. And it just kept growing from there. Um, to where it like basically hockey sticks starting kind of middle of last year, about a year later. So um, how are you marketing it then? Now it's, you say you're not a marketer, so. Well, I found that uh, inbound marketing is something I'm good at. So SEO, Google. Yeah. Uh, I got really good. And the reason that I'm good at that is I'm really good at writing stuff and long form content is the thing that I'm best at writing, um, like a book, for example. And so what I learned was that I could find something that people were looking for on Google that I was an expert in and I could write a super long article about it and figure out how to get a lot of Google traffic there. And so over time, I've built up traffic for my website in general, but also for people who are looking for, for example, they have a Google job offer and they're, they're Googling like, can I negotiate my offer from Google? I'm the first website that they see, right? Can I negotiate my offer from Amazon? I'm the first thing they see. Um, and then a bunch of other things so that they come into my site. So it's all inbound marketing. So it's content marketing, inbound marketing, SEO search. That's the way I do it. At what point does Amazon and Google just pay you off? <laughs> I don't know. I've been I've been waiting for that call, right? Because like, hey man, like we understand what you're doing. Stop. Like here's here's a few Listen. million dollars. We just like stop, please. <laughs> yeah, just put me, put me on a retainer. This will save us in the long yeah. run. I'll just go to the beach and you guys send me a check. Uh, I've been. I mean, it would be there's a big number that they could pay me every year that would be very profitable for them for me not to negotiate against them. You know, That's, I mean, I've cost them millions of dollars. Um, in terms of like just employee salary. So I've, it's something I've thought about is like eventually they're gonna figure it out because they, they do such, <laughs> they're hiring, you know, I saw an article I'm the other day. I'm gonna send this podcast to yeah. them and be like, yo, what's going on? <laughs> hook this guy up, I wanna go to the beach with him and hang out at his con. <laughs> <laughs> send me a contract, uh, I'll read it. Maybe they'll get to a point where they don't actually hire the person if they're not using your tactics. <laughs> right, right. They, they didn't they're do like, good oh. enough research. <laughs> yeah, we only want the we only want really dedicated people who care about business and themselves and so if you right. read Josh's book, don't talk to us. <laughs> <It'd> be wild. <laughs> I mean, this is cool, man. This is cool that it's kind of like, it's it's like one of those things where you don't really expect it no, to I mean, happen and it just kind of d- organically does and you just kind of keep experimenting, a lot of trial and error. and ton of trial and error and just like you, I'm, I mentioned earlier that I'm like, I try a lot of experiments. I'm looking to try things that I know will fail to see how they fail. So I'm not afraid of failure, especially in my business. Right? And in personal life, it's like harder, right? Like <laughs> the, the consequences can be bigger if you fail at certain things. But in business, I feel like if I've got money in the bank and I'm not burning the business to the ground, I wanna try stuff and see what happens. And sometimes those things that I expect to fail will actually hockey stick. Sometimes they will fail, but I'll learn like why they failed, right? Maybe they'll fail for reasons that I didn't anticipate and that could be a really good learning experience. So that's a lot of what I do is like, when James said you should position yourself as a coach and not an author, I was like, all right, well, I'll try it. What do I got to lose? Like I'm already thinking about getting a day job. What the end result could be that I get a day job. I'm not worried about that. But the other, the flip side could be that I'm sitting here now saying like, I'm, I'm running a very profitable business my margins are like 90 something percent. Um, and so the more, the more revenue I drive in, the more, the more money I put in my pocket. 
um, but only because I try things that could fail and that give me a chance to find, to uncover those little hidden hockey sticks that might be laying around. Yeah, this is neat. Yeah, I feel like I'm rambling a lot. Like, do you guys? No, have, no, no, I'm just, I'm just like, like just kind of like captivated by the idea of it. What would you say the average like increase that you do? You know that number? It's hard. I used to know the number, and I, this is something that I need to do better. I have a giant spreadsheet that I kind of keep track of, but not not as well as I should. So for a while, the average increase was fifty thousand dollars, basically, for software developers. If I had to guess, that's gone higher now, and the reason is that I've had a couple of million dollar wins for for my clients, and so it doesn't. You know, if you the, you take a big number like that and divide it by, I think I probably worked with 50 or 60 people. And so you take a couple million dollar wins and divide it by that number and you get a big number. Mm-hmm. And so it's probably up around, if I had to guess like 60 or 75,000 um, is the average increase. Okay. But again, that, that average is gonna it's be skewed high. Right. Yeah. Um, I would say, what, what are the, I, don't, I'm, I was always bad at statistics, but like there's that, it's not the, the, the average, but like the number that like is like the middle number, if you, if you wrote them all out mm-hmm. on a line, it's like that middle number is probably like thirty dollars or $40,000. Like well, let's say Mo- the most frequent increase. Yeah, the most frequent the increase mo- is probably. called the mode in stats that, if I remember. Uh, yeah. That sounds right to me. Yeah. Probably $30,000, $40,000. And there's a, big, there's a big variance. Sometimes it's zero. Um, that's something that's really interesting about my job is like I'm up front with people like, I don't have a magic wand over here. Like I have a process that works and the process is designed, is designed to figure out what's the best version of the offer that they, they can make. Um, and so, so sometimes it's like another million dollars and sometimes it's zero dollars. And you don't know until you start negotiating what, what's gonna happen. And so um, that's a really kind of a fascinating thing about my job is even going in, I don't know how flexible Amazon's gonna be on this job offer. Like it looks like they could have flexibility or maybe they made the best offer up front because they didn't wanna lose you. Um, but and we're gonna find out. Have you gotten to the point where the strategy changes based on the employer that you know they're negotiating with? Like, is there somebody consistently that you're like, oh, I know we can get more out of these guys and not so much out of these guys? Yeah, um, it, there are different strategies. So that, you know, they're, the reason that you find like, should I negotiate my Google offer and should I negotiate my Amazon offer when you Google me, find me, is that there are different strategies. Like they have, I won't go into like the minutia, but the way that Amazon uses, for example, their equity grants that they do is very weird. Um, and so it, it leaves, and they cap base salaries in Amazon for the most part. And so they cap it like 160K. And so if you're a super senior software developer, 160K is nothing compared to what you could get if you went to like Netflix or somebody else. And so now we're talking about, well, we're not even gonna negotiate salary. We're only gonna figure out how much equity and sign-on bonus you can get. And so there are different strategies there in terms of like, how do I move those levers most effectively? At other firms, you're looking at base salary first, and then you like to tack on a bunch of equity if you can, or a sign-on bonus or something like that. So um, yeah, so different, especially the big firms, the big five, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, um, those five all have kind of different strategies that are involved and different little quirks and wrinkles that are part of their compensation structures that I've, I've kind of uncovered as I've negotiated against them over time. And so I can bring those to bear for my clients, right? So anybody can read my book and use that methodology and it will work for them, but it's not gonna get nearly as much money if they read my book and do something for say Microsoft as it would if I came in and said, actually, here's where you can exploit the process here. You can get a, diff- a higher level is available to you and that's not written about my book because uh, there's just not enough pages to do it. Huh. Dang. So tell me, so can you give us like a, like a tip? Like, I mean, I don't wanna give away the whole, the whole the secret Oh, I'll give it away. It's, you, can, you can literally read all the secret sauce on my site for free. Okay. So I give it away for right, free. Cool. So, it's, it's, that's part of my marketing, right, right? Well then, like, tell us, like, I mean, I don't know, give us an example of something that's happened, something that you, that you did that actually led to the results and like what was, what was said, what was, you know. Yeah, sure. Know, give so us, give us I would say. Details, man. Yeah, the best, <laughs> the, best, the best tip that I have is um, when you're interviewing with a company, right? Um, a lot of times they're gonna ask you like what your salary expectations are. If we hire you, what do you hope to make? And my advice is don't tell them that. Um, and so that, that's my number one tip. It's probably the one that um, if you do that, it will leave the door open longer for you to continue interviewing, right? Because I used to be a hiring manager too, so that's part of my, my secret sauce is I used to hire people and negotiate salaries from the other side. And I used to consult on this stuff too with companies like how should you pay people? But what people don't realize is there's not like a fixed number that they're willing to pay you. That number is very variable. It'll, it'll move depending on how you interview because they're usually working with a giant spreadsheet that has ranges. And so what you wanna do is delay the, the salary conversation as long as possible because your job in the interview, if you're doing it right, is to impress them 
over and over and over to the point where they're not thinking, you know, what's the minimum that we have to offer Colin to get him to come work for us? They're thinking, what, what's, what do we have to offer Colin to get him to come? Like, what do we have to do to convince him that we, he should come work for us? Because we need to have him on our team. He's interviewed well for us. He's impressed us. What's it going to take? $25 million. $25 million. Bucks. <laughs> right? <laughs> to um, start. Yeah, to start. That's, that's year one. And we'll talk about that's your one year contract. Um, and so if you throw out a number early, even if the number is kind of in their range and they're kind of happy with it, what you don't realize is maybe if you had not set a number early and you kept interviewing really well, their number would have gone up over time, what they would pay you. Um, and so you could cost yourself money inadvertently just by saying a number too early or guessing wrong. So that's, that's the big thing is I say, don't say that number. So the idea is that you wanna continue interviewing, impress them that you're the right candidate for that position, convince them that they need to persuade you to join their team. And then when you get to the offer stage, not only are they gonna make you a good offer, but they're probably gonna have flexibility on it because they're thinking, what, what's it gonna take? We gotta have this person on our team. So once you get to the offer, probably my second most valuable piece of advice is always negotiate your job offers. Um, people are always worried about Losing offers, that happens extremely rarely. I'm happy to talk about it, but it's very rare. And when it does happen, usually it's a red flag. If, if you're trying to just negotiate, if you use my methodology, you're not, sending, you're not asking for double the salary, you're asking for 10 or 20% more in a tactful way. And so if, if the response to, you know, they offered you 100K and you said like 110 and they said, never mind, no more offer, that's not a company you want to work for because that tells me that they're bargain hunting, right? So they're looking for the cheapest possible person who doesn't care about themselves enough to ask for a little bit more money and try and get maximum value for the salary and for the time that they're gonna put in. So always negotiate. There's almost always upside to negotiating. The reason is that companies anticipate that you might negotiate and wanna give themselves room to work with you so they are a good negotiating partner. So they're rarely gonna come out of the gate and just offer you their best package. It happens occasionally, but it's rare. And if they did that, it's because they really wanna work with you and so the downside of negotiating is they'll say, oh no, we already made you our best and final offer. That's, that's what you, you have to take that or leave that. I appreciate you negotiating, but that's, that's as good as it gets. And that's good to know for you, right? You start at the company and you know, I'm getting the best paycheck that I can get for this company from this job. And so that's what you wanna do. So always negotiate. I usually negotiate 10 or 20% on the base salary is the thing that I focus on for my clients. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's not like a story. I could, you know, if we, if we want to talk stories, but yeah, like yeah. generally, tactically speaking, don't, don't be the first one to name a number, always negotiate, try to get 10 or 20% more. So what do you say when they ask you for your, what your number is? I'm just trying to think of like, if I was in that scenario, how do I like respectfully decline? I don't want to tell them I'm not worried about it, but like, like what, like, what do you say there? Sure. So I have a little script for this. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try it and we'll, we'll see if I nail it. So, so they, they're usually going to say to you one of two things, depending on where you are, it's either going to be, so if you come join us, what are you hoping to make? Or they're going to say, what's your current salary? And what are you hoping to make if you come join us? In some states, it's literally illegal to ask you for your current salary or your salary history. So they won't do it. In most states, they will do that. And so my answer to that is, I'd rather not talk about what I'm making right now. I want to focus on the value that I can bring to your firm. I want this step to be um, this move to be a big step forward in terms of both responsibility and compensation. I look forward to hearing what you have to say when we get to that point. So you just sidestep it. It's like, I see it as like a, a, negoti a negotiation judo move. Like they're coming at you hard and you just go boop and push them right on by. Um, and, then, and then their response is, you know, they might come back at you again. And that's where you just kind of say, I really don't know. So, so this is the question I get the most this is the, the topic that I get the most questions about, which is like, how do you avoid this question? Because there, there are some really um, uh, intense recruiters, so we'll just keep coming at you. And so I think it helps if you have a script like what I just said, but also if you just think about what they're really asking you, if they're asking for salary expectations. And so I like to reframe it like this. They're saying like, let's say you're talking to Apple. Apple is basically saying, look, we've got an entire team of people who are hiring thousands of people at a time. We've got salary surveys from private firms and public firms. We've got thousands of people already doing the job that we're gonna hire you to do. What do you think we might pay somebody like you to do the job that we're hiring you for? Take a guess, right? And your answer is, I have no idea. You're Apple. I don't know what you're paying engineers right now. I don't know what your salary surveys say. I don't know what that guy on the desk is making. So I'm not gonna guess, I'm not gonna play that game. And that's when you, so in your head, that's kind of your mental script is like, they're literally asking me to guess what their pay structure looks like. There's no way I'm going to guess accurately. I'm either gonna guess low, which is gonna cost me money, or I'm gonna guess too high, which could possibly disqualify me for the role, right? Like I might think I'm going for something more senior. 
but like pre-disqualify because remember you can keep interviewing. So even if you would have overshot if you guessed early, maybe your interview will convince them that they should bring you on at a higher salary. Maybe they'll even bump you up a pay grade or a level before they make the offer, right? So that's my mental script is they're asking you to literally guess what their pay structure looks like and you are not going to guess that correctly because you're just one person with one resume and no data. Um, so it's just, it's a, it's a nice sidestep. You just say, look, I, I wanna focus on the value that I add to your team. Um, I'm excited about joining your team. I want this to be a big step forward in terms of me for responsibility and compensation. So you're signaling to them, like, I wanna be a player here in your team that's a significant contributor. I wanna be compensated for those contributions. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. That's awesome. It's really good. That's fascinating. So most of your clients are people going after these big jobs at these big companies yeah. primarily like this is like that's like your niche right now i mean yeah. do you have any like thoughts on bringing this down to a more like i want to say like localized level or small smaller businesses like people who are going for jobs like even here in town so that's like, what my book is for. Okay. It, the, the irony is I actually kind of, that's where I started, right? right. So that's who the book was for, was like, it, it, it took me a full year to write and publish Fearless Salary <laughs> Negotiation because I was trying to write a one-size-fits-all salary negotiation methodology, which is really hard to do. So somebody who literally has their first job out of college and is going to work for like a small healthcare company, um, this is actually a real example. I, I won't name names, but my, one of my first coaching clients was just a friend of a friend, and he was like, I just got a job in the healthcare industry, they offered me, I don't know what the number was, 35K, can you help me negotiate? And I said, yeah, let's do it. And he got a 10% bump by negotiating, right? All the way up to like, if you're getting a job offer for like a senior engineering position at Microsoft and you read my book and use it, you will make more money at Microsoft, right? Because the, the methodology is like one, one size fits all. Gotcha. So the idea was I started with, what's a one size fits all methodology and what background do you need to negotiate your salary on your own without my help? Because remember, I was trying to build a passive income business. So I had to build it so you could do it yourself. So right. it's, all, it's all DIY. Um, and so that's where I started. And then eventually I published it so that you can go to fearlesssalarynegotiation.com slash book and just read the book online for free. Because I got a lot of emails from people, let's say in India, who were like, I can't afford your book. And I was like, great, well just here's a link, you can just read it for free online, <laughs> right? That's awesome. And so it's a lot of like, almost like pay what you want type where you can buy my book or you can read it online for free. Of course, if you buy it, then you own it and you can download worksheets and stuff like that that help make it more accessible and more useful all the way up to like, I'll do it for you. And that's where my kind of bespoke negotiation coaching comes in where people will hire me to do their work for them. Um, so I mean, the answer to your question is yes. I, I think that's there. brilliant marketing, dude. I yeah. mean, like, I mean, you're giving so much value for free. Like, you're like, it's free. It's online. That's my whole philosophy is I, I'm, I constantly am thinking like, how, how much can I give away so that people can find this and do it themselves. Because, and this is gonna sound, I know it's gonna sound like, but like, I like to help people. I like the idea that somebody in a country that I've never been to, somebody I've never heard of, never talked to, can find my book and read it, and they can get more money for themselves and their family. Like, that makes me feel good, helps me sleep better at night. So, do you see this evolving into, like, anything else? I mean, have you been asked to come speak yet? Or, I can just see that, like, kind of blossoming from this. Yeah, um, are you, I'm gonna ask you to clarify your question. Okay, yeah. Are you like, asking me if this scales, or are you asking me if both. there's like, Let's okay. Let's talk both, I mean like, what, how, do you, how do you scale it from here? And then, you know, and then like, what, what other opportunities are gonna come from, from the fact that you wrote this book? Yeah, so it's interesting, like, I'm super introverted, so that's something that's challenging for me. Like I've done, you know, I, just yesterday afternoon, I had an interview with a, a, a reporter at HuffPo who was writing a piece and she wanted to talk to me about it, right? Um, uh, and then a couple of years ago, uh, I was on the BBC uh, on like an international news show. And so I get those opportunities, but I don't really seek them out, right? Like you were talking about our friend James who's doing like a PR tour right now and he's all <laughs> over TV. Um, and I think I probably could try to do something like that, but it's not how I'm wired. Like I don't wanna be on TV, right? Um, and so that makes it challenging for me to scale, to get bigger. And so the way I've gotten bigger so far is just get better at offering my product, getting results for people and raising my prices and going up market in terms of who I'm coaching. Um, I think if I were to continue to scale, that that method will work to a point. I don't know how big I could get doing that, but I think that's that's the first thing. The second thing would be, you know, do I try to hire people? 
teach them this methodology and then now I've got like a, like an agency of sorts where um, I've got people who work for me, I teach them how to do it and uh, you know, they get paid you know, some kind of commission or something for doing the work. And that's probably not a way that I'll go. Um, at least in the short term, like I don't really want employees, like I've managed people before. It's fine, but it's not really for me. And one thing I like about my business, like yesterday, I mean, you look at me right now, like I'm a little bit red, right? Because I sat out at Depot Park and took conference calls yesterday. Yeah. And like, I don't know how much of that stuff I can get away with if I have people to manage. Um, and they're wondering like, why is Josh out getting a sunburn instead of like, enter my email. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so I think it, the, the first thing is, I don't think I've hit max capacity yet in terms of what my business can do. I think, I think this new pricing that I'm doing is a way that I, I try to double revenue every year because um, I started with a really small number. So you start with a small number and it's small for a few years and then it's a big number. This year it's gonna be a big number if I hit that number. Um, and I think that the way that I do that is with this new pricing model which allows me to access more of the results that I create for people when I hit home runs for people. It allows me to capture more of that value. And I think that allows me to continue going up market and to work with higher value customers who get more value from the, the hands-on work that I do um, and, and then you know create some kind of a recurring income stream as well. Um, beyond that, I don't know if I'm gonna scale. Um, to be honest with you, I live in Gainesville, so I don't need to make more money. If I do it, it's, it's for scorekeeping, right? It's to, it's to say that I'm making that much money. Um, but like I said, my business runs on like 90% margin, so there's a point where I'm just making money to make money, and I think I'd rather have time than, than more money at this point. It's good, man. All right, so talk to me about some stuff from the employer side now. All right. Because, <laughs> like, here we are. Like, I mean, most of our audience, right? Most of our audience is our business owners, um, entrepreneurs. I mean, people who are going to be sitting on the other side of this. <laughs> yeah. People are hiring you. People are hiring you. And so, like, I'm going, to, I'm going against you right now. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> right? So, like, yeah, I mean, of course, we're trying to, you know, get a, a, a great quality team member who's being compensated fairly for sure. Yeah. But like, I mean, so maybe set it up that way. Like what, what should employers be doing from the start to make sure that one, they are offering fair compensation or, you know, they're in that, like, should they, should they plan for a negotiation? Because I'm kind of the opposite, like kind of where you were saying, come in with your, with your best. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I'm pretty much laying out like, this is it. Yeah. This is all I got. Take it or leave it. I mean, should I, should I not do that? You know, like what, what is your advice to the employer? Yeah. So I think you said a, a lot of the advice that I would give you said there. So I, I think that first of all, it's important to know that if you try to cheap out on hiring costs for people, you will pay for that on the back end and churn costs for your workforce. And so my guess is that you know this better than anybody. It's probably why you make strong offers, um, especially when you're running new scooters for less. Right. And that is that, maybe you could not trick somebody, but you could find somebody who would take a lower salary, maybe than they're worth, right? Than the value that they bring to the business. But if you do, that person's gonna be gone soon because somebody else is gonna find them and they're gonna make them a strong offer. And so even if you're at a small company, a local company, if you're competing with other local companies and you're paying people below market value, the market will find those people and pull them to another business. And what that means for you is, it costs a lot of money to hire people. It's not cheap. You got to interview people. You're taking time out of your day. There's a lot of man hours and time that goes into hiring someone. And so you then take that cost of hiring somebody and you hire somebody who's going to turn out in six months and go somewhere else. And you just wasted a bunch of money. Because then once you get them on board, you got to ramp them up. You got to train them. You got to make them productive. And that's going to take, especially in a business like this, where there's a lot of stuff to learn. They're not going to come in and be productive from day one. So now you invested a bunch of money interviewing them, finding the right candidate, sometimes you know, doing job listings. Maybe you have somebody in HR whose job is to find these people and bring them in. You interviewed them, you made them a low offer. They were so desperate they took it, good for you. And now in six months, you gotta replace them. You gotta go through the whole process again after you've trained them up at everything. And by the way, your IP is leaking out the door the whole time you're doing this too, right? Because they're probably going to similar firms. So I think that it's short-sighted for employers to, to try and, and save money on salary negotiations because they're gonna pay for it in employee churn and their attrition rate's gonna go up and it's gonna be more expensive in the long run because they're gonna keep replacing these good people. Whereas if I just finished coaching somebody, I have to be careful what I say here. He was at a firm who had a customer, okay? And so he was in like, he was helping them do technical setup type stuff. And um, the customer was like a big company that we've all heard of and used their products. And they said, hey, why don't you come work for us? And this guy had been at his current firm for like 15 years. He did not wanna leave. 
but he had asked for more money for a few years and they would not give him more money. He knew he was well below market rates and they were just taking advantage of the fact that they had built up a lot of loyalty for this employee being at the firm for 15 years, just assuming he would never actually have the guts to leave. Well, sure enough, he found me in my book and he found the guts to leave. And so we negotiated him a fantastic offer at this other firm and he still was on the fence about leaving after 15 years. Of course. But the bottom line is, it, they tried to make a retention offer last ditch. It didn't work. It wasn't still wasn't enough because he was so far behind the pay curve, right? And so for that company um, that he left, it's really short sighted because he was an excellent employee for them. They wanted him to do more. They wanted to, him to be in a leadership position, but they were just so cheap. They got used to the idea that he would take lower than market rates, and now he's gone, and they got to replace him. And I think they're going to have a really hard time replacing him. Mm-hmm. So even on the long time scale, if they had just paid this guy market rates, he would not have left. But they wouldn't do it because they got used to being cheap. And so now he's at this other firm. He's doing really well. He's got a great offer from them. And he's got leadership potential and all this other stuff. Because it's, a, it's, it's like the innovator's dilemma, but applied to like a, a single firm, right? Like they just, they refused to innovate and they got stuck. They got used to paying him not very much and having him grind out this boring job. And he left. Um, and so that happens at, at, at all scales, big and small. Have any tips for like really being able to zero in on like what market rate is? For the employer? Yeah. Um, I think it's super tough. I mean, I think you can buy salary surveys from like salary.com and stuff like that. So if you really want to know, it's going to be tough um, depending on your industry, right? But um, let's say like for new scooters for less, like you would model that as like a retail um, retail service sector or something like that. And you could figure out like in Florida market, what's the typical hourly wage for somebody who works in that sector. Um, so, so you can, you the, yourself can use glassdoor.com, payscale.com, salary.com to find out what the market salaries are reported as. And you can also, if you wanna pony up some money, you can pay for like a salary survey that like one of these uh, consulting firms will do that'll say like, here are the market rates based on thousands of data points or hundreds of thousands of data points. You could also just ask other people in, in the city, right? So like you're, you're competing with, um, at New Scooters for Less or any other retail shop, you're all competing for similar types of employees, like not exactly the same, but the same, you know, probably undergrads who want to make money on the side and can work three days a week or people who just recently graduated and are still in Gainesville and they want an hourly wage. And so have a lunch with them and and see what the prevailing wage is, right? Not so that you can fix wages, but so that you can know like what are people paying people so that I don't get left behind and start losing out on good talent. Um, So it's, I don't think there's like a super easy way to do it, but there are firms that do research on that kind of stuff if if you want to buy salary surveys. Okay, what else? <laughs> just keep spilling now. <laughs> just keep spilling everything. Gosh. It's I mean, tough if, um, because I haven't worn the employer hat in so long, but I used to wear it, right? Um, so I think, I mean, I think that the big thing I've always thought was really short-sighted is, is not identifying, this, this was my day job for a while, so I thought about it a lot, but like not identifying good talent and putting in a plan to retain that talent and have them promoted and moving up in your company. And that's what happened with the, the example I just gave. He, he should have been promoted a long time ago, but he was so good at his job. This is, this is something that happens to managers. It's like, well, I could promote him, but then I have to replace him. And who's gonna replace him? He's so good at his job. Then I'm gonna have to do a lot more work. And so I'm just gonna leave him there and keep paying him when I'm paying him, or maybe even give him small raises, but not give him more responsibility. And you've gotta step out of your own way as a manager and allow people to rise to the top. Let the cream rise to the top, because they're gonna go be productive somewhere eventually. And so, even if you feel like, man, if, if this person, if I promote him, I can't replace him, that's, you're making your problem his problem, and he's gonna solve that problem by going somewhere else or she. And so you've gotta identify talent, keep on top of what people are motivated by, and give them more of that so they'll stick around and make your firm more productive over time, more valuable over time. Um, if you ignore that, you do so at your own peril because you're eventually gonna end up replacing that somebody who's not nearly as qualified as them, and you're not gonna have that person around to train their replacement because they quit. Um, and so I, th- I think that's something employers really just mess up is they look too much at spreadsheets and numbers and not enough at the in- individual personnel and they don't have a career plan or a career path in place for their, re- their best talent that they want to retain. Yeah, that's good. That's really good advice. Cause I, I mean, I, like I know, I feel like we could even do that better and just having like a really good like growth process, you know, even if you. I mean, I've always been one of those guys where I, when I recognize, I say like Mike, like Mike was the driver, <laughs> you know, now, yeah. now he's the CEO. Right. So it's like, so right. like you can, you can get there, but like, is there, is there like a process or things that, that you need to do over time to like, to be able to take those opportunities? Um, I can't, I can't say that we have a very clear defined 
path, you know? It's hard. So that's why so that's why you don't have it. Feel terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, no, I that's great. This is great. This is like I'm like, yeah, we need to be. We need to do better. I, I don't know if this is still true, but I know that for a long time at New Scooters for Less, it, the the UCE was like a big deal, right? Yeah. Okay. Still, still to this day. So so you need to create a UCE for your employees. That's that's what you need, right? What's the ultimate employee experience? The UEE, right? To make sure that they know that if you come work for me, you you could be CEO one day right, no matter where you start, which is a very powerful motivator for people. Like yeah, and you, I feel like we do that in a plethora of other ways. Mm-hmm. We're just not clearly defining like that that growth process, you know? Like, I mean, I think this weekend was case in point, I mean, doing like the cultural, you know, family family yeah. reunion, I mean, yeah. great team building. We went over to America's Escape Game and did escape okay. rooms together. I mean, I like, r- really, yeah, really cool team building things that we're doing all the time. I'm um, always, have always had like that healthy, that healthy culture, but that's just gonna make it more healthy for sure. Yeah, I mean, there, there are, so that's a big component that like, frankly, most companies don't spend enough time on is like, how do I make sure that the people who work here know they are currently valued and they're having a good time? As good a time as you can have when you're working, right? Like it's a, you have to do a job and a business needs to be run, but like you can make that enjoyable on a spectrum. Um, but then there's all, that's, that's shorter term, right? That's, that's like tactical. How do we have fun this weekend? How do we make sure everybody isn't bummed about coming back to work on Monday morning? That's tactical short term, but you have your longer term strategic stuff you gotta think about too, which is how do I keep this person who is a baller at their job in that job longer and how do I eventually get them into a leadership position so they can take things off my plate as CEO uh, and and allow me to focus more on growing the business or running the business or operating more efficiently or whatever that is. Um, and that has to be a very intentional thing. That does not happen by accident, um, but it's hard work. Uh, and that, that was even when I was consulting on this stuff um, you know, for other firms, that's what I found was it was like, we could tell them exactly what to do, but at the end of the day, somebody's got to sit down and say, how are we going to identify our top five people in the company and what's our five-year plan for them? Like, how do we continue to promote them so they don't go away? Um, and even just identifying those top five people is something like a lot of companies don't know. Small and big, a 20-person firm may not be able to actually map out who are the top five role players in this company right now, right? And, and who are the people... Um, what's their what's what's the damage to the business if they go away tomorrow? A lot of firms don't know that, right? So you've got a a lot of like there's there's your um, the the two axes that you that most companies don't think about that they should be thinking desperately about are uh, what's the risk of loss? So you identify your top people and you pick one and you say what's the risk that they're going to go away t- soon tomorrow next month next week? You know how likely are they to leave the firm? And if they do leave the firm, how bad is that for us? What's the impact of, of losing them? And so you can kind of plot those on like, it's called a nine box or whatever. But you've, if you've got anybody in the upper right quadrant, which is like very high risk of loss, very high impact of loss, you've got a serious problem for your business. Because you've identified now someone who is very likely to go away soon, and if they go away, you're in big trouble. And so a lot of firms don't know if there's anybody because they don't map that out. And it sounds silly, but like you could sit down, it's something you could do in half an hour. You could take, you know, if you've got 30 employees, you could just go bang, bang, one to three. Impact low one, impact high three, risk low one, risk high three. Do it for everybody in the company. And if you've got anybody that's a three three, you need to promote them or, or talk to them and say, what can we do to keep you here? Or you need to find a succession plan for them. So if they're, they're gonna leave soon, you need to figure out what you're gonna do when they leave. So you're not surprised by it, right? But companies don't do this stuff. And so when you start doing exercises like that, the other stuff kind of naturally comes out. Because now you're faced with, we've got three people who if they leave, they're gonna leave soon, according to our, like we think they're probably already looking for other jobs, and if they leave, we're in big trouble. What's our plan, right? How do we avoid the big trouble? Most firms aren't even thinking about that stuff. And that's when you get the, uh, I don't know what happened. Frank just left yesterday, and now we're stuck, and we don't know where, where all these orders are gonna get fulfilled or whatever. Hmm. So I think you know that from the employer side, that's something really important to think about. And what that does is it makes my job easier because now you're proactively identifying the high value people and you're giving them raises, you're giving them promotions and the people don't even have to come ask you for them, right? That's my book is designed for basically firms that aren't doing this stuff proactively. So the person can go in and say, hey, I'm a high impact person. I'm a valuable person. You want me in here, but you're not paying me market rate. I would like more money. That's you know chapter seven of my book basically. Um, but from the employer side, you can be proactive about that. It's just really hard work and most employers aren't willing to put in the time or the cost to do it. Okay, and if they are hitting market rate, then what? Then, then, you, then your, your risk is probably more around the responsibilities that you're giving them, right? So you could be paying them well, but they're bored. So that, that's the people, the high impact people are usually high impact because they're energized and because they're engaged and they're good at what they do. And they're gonna get bored eventually because 
a lot of those people have the personality type. I think we're probably in a room full of these personality types. They're the type of person that if they're having a really high impact, if they're really good at what they're doing, um, that they have systematized what they do so that they don't have to work as hard at it anymore and they're gonna start getting bored, right? They work themselves out of a job, basically, is, is the term of art. So you've gotta look for, okay, you're really good at this job, how happy are you in this job right now? Talk to them. Do you love the work that you're doing? Are you starting to get bored? Like, what can we do to make this more interesting for you? Where else would you like to contribute in the company? You're really good at this. Is there something else that you've got your eye on that we can start working with you on so that you can contribute in a different way so that we don't lose you, so that we give you more responsibility, but it's more interesting to you. And maybe you can train somebody to do this other stuff that you're really good at already. This is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm literally thinking about people that that uh, you know, I manage here that they go through that. Yeah. Right? I mean, whether it's uh, fulfillment and, and job capacity stuff that they've done for a while, and then so I mean, we only have we have sales assistants, we have mechanics, and then a couple things in between. But like sometimes there's just I don't want to say there's no path of growth, but like there's they're they're blocked. There there's people in those positions, and I can't just bring on more to to create a position for them so they can be fulfilled. So it's like you know, I kind of find myself in a what do you do there situation. Yeah, one of the big problems that that we have, and I think this plagues a lot of Gainesville business, is being in a college town where the talent that you have is going to the school to get a degree in something, and you want to keep them, but their eyes are looking, you know, where, where am I going after I graduate? And and so that's that's the turnover that we experience. It's not so much a, a year to year, but it's just a, okay, after I lose you in four years, what am I gonna do? Uh, how do I keep that person? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you may not be able to, right? So there's a concept, I think, I think I wrote about this in the book, called being other-valued, which is you're not overvalued or undervalued, you're other-valued, which means you just got a skill set that can't be applied to this firm. You just can't do it. And so that, that might happen. If, you, if you've got somebody who's really, really good at their job um, at either of your companies that you're running right now, and then they get a degree in organic chemistry, that's, I was biotechnology, by the way. Biotech, yeah. <laughs> you actually could land somewhere in Gainesville, maybe not, maybe not here, but like there's a lot of biotech in Gainesville that, that right. you could go. But that's exactly a great answer, right? Like, like you ended up here, but if you had pursued that career path, you probably would not have ended up here in this room right now. You would have ended up at Exact Tech or something like mm-hmm. that, right? And so that happens sometimes, and it's just a natural part. It's it's a it's a big challenge, I think, in Gainesville, right? And sometimes you just have to acknowledge like. There's just nothing that I can do. Like they they have moved on, and so yeah. And what about like unrealistic expectations? Because I think a lot of times people graduate from the university. They graduate from the University of Florida and go, okay, great, I graduated. I I now make a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they're like I graduated. I want to make a hundred okay. grand. I've got this massive like, student uh, loan debt. And I need to repay it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And exactly. And that. that's just like, well, yeah. And it's like, un- I mean, you're just like, what the. Are you thinking? <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that's the flip side of the other other valued problem, right? Is is like I think as somebody who graduates with a degree in a degree in organic chemistry, you can't go back to your job as a service technician at New Scooters for Less and say, now I want to make organic chemistry money. Like that's not how business works. That's not efficient. And so sometimes that, that they either need to let that go, maybe become CEO one day, or just go get a job at a firm that will pay them appropriately that does value organic chemistry as a degree better. And so I, I'm sure that's a challenge that you're gonna have in Gainesville, but also it's just a challenge I think for like retail in general is like people, you know, you, how often do you see somebody who's 60 year old, 60 years old working in retail? Like not very often. Usually they have found like a different opportunity somewhere else over time and they've gained other skills that they wanna apply differently. And so, but again, as good managers, like you just, you can't put your head in the sand about that. You have to acknowledge that that's a real problem that you might have. And as you go up the pyramid of, you know, organizational pyramid, like there are fewer positions up there. There's only one CEO, right? There's only one COO, there's only one CFO, and there's only, you know, a few VPs or directors or whatever. And so you can't promote everybody. And so eventually they'll either be happy with where they're at, maybe they get raises over time because they become more productive, or they just have to go somewhere else where they can be paid more because they're other valued. Um, and that's just a reality of doing business. What you want to avoid is losing somebody who should have found a home as a more senior person or a better paid person in your firm and that person leaves. That's what, that's what your job as a manager is to avoid. Your job is to identify the good talent that has a home and to find something for them to do if you don't want to lose them. Um, that's, 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 your, that's your job as a manager, like maybe one of the biggest jobs as a manager. Dude, this has been great. This has been a lot of fun.
Yeah, me too. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks for coming in, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, I mean so I why don't you tell everybody where they can where they can find you and um, you know if they want to hire you, <laughs> they're going for that yeah. Google or Apple job where they can hire you and to holler at me. Yeah. So um, the the book website is uh, fearlesssalarynegotiation.com. Uh, all the stuff that I've been talking about is there. Um, slash book for my book if you want to read it online. Slash coach to learn about my coaching offering. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Josh Duty. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, and if you ping me on there, then that's a really good way to get a response from me. So those are the places that that I'm most active. Is I put new content on FearlessSalaryNegotiation.com, and then I'm I'm reading Twitter too much. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a great place to be, though. Yeah. I would. What about LinkedIn? You on LinkedIn? I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, I feel like that'd be a good place for you too. Yeah, I probably should use LinkedIn as a marketing platform better, and I don't. Um, that's honestly, like, I'm on there because that's where a lot of like press will reach out to me. That's how they yeah, find yeah. me. I'm sure. definitely on there, right? Um, and have a lot of connections, but um, it's not something I use actively to like to promote my business. Cool. Thanks again, man. It's yeah, been a lot of fun. Awesome. You have any last minute questions? No, I mean, I have a lot of homework to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want you to do that like chart thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's where, where I'm headed. So. <laughs> so we got identify top people, and then if they leave, how, how bad would it be, right? So you're saying X and Y axis, right. Yep. right? And risk, then, risk and impact of loss. To the conjure. How likely are they to leave, and what, how bad is it if they leave? Because if you have somebody who's not likely to leave, uh, then you probably don't need to worry about it too much. But you, or if you have somebody who, if they left, you don't care, the impact is low then it's like, that's probably not a good fit anyway. But high impact of loss and high risk of loss is a problem that you need to address yesterday. Can't wait to see your chart. No, I'm, sure, I'm sure about it. <laughs> well, that's it, Gainesville. Thank you so much for listening. This is the WHOA GNV Podcast, the podcast bringing you businesses and individuals that make you go, whoa. We will see you later. <laughs>